This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. Of all the new initiatives introduced in recent years by Racing New South Wales, none have been more widely acclaimed than the weekly Tab Highway races. Introduced four years ago, the Tab Highways have proven to be a tremendous stimulus for country racing stables as new owners constantly look for the right horses to bring to town. At first, Trainers like Matt Dunn, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the highways, but nowadays the results prove that many and varied stables have learned to identify the kind of horse they need to travel down the highway. $75,000 in prize money and an assortment of race distances are making these races highly competitive and stimulating healthy betting trends. The Tab Highways are a big part of the new world of Sydney racing. Punters who invested on the last race at Wagga on Australia Day were not remotely interested in the emotional state of race caller Alan Hull, who was bringing down the curtain on a distinguished broadcasting career. Like most punters, they wanted nothing but a clear, concise, business-like call of the 1,200-metre benchmark 58 and that's exactly what they got. No different to the thousands of thoroughbred and harness races Alan had called around the Riverina for more than four decades. In fact, he seemed much more interested in the fact that his great mate Trevor Sutherland had trained the winner real key. With his final gallops call out of the way, the veteran commentator awaited his swan song meeting at the Albury Paceway five days later calling the sport which had launched his career and the sport to which he remained intensely loyal. He was deeply disappointed when another hot day forced the abandonment of the Albury trots. He'd look forward to getting his teeth around that last program and giving the locals something to remember him by. Not that they needed a reminder. They'll long remember the stellar career of the young bloke who grew up on a farm at Gregadoo, the young bloke who attained his intermediate certificate at Wagga High School before completing a trade which was the thing that young blokes did in the 1960s. Young Allen became a fully qualified fitter and machinist during his seven years with a local engineering firm, all the while knowing there was something else he wanted to do. From a nervous and tentative beginning at the Tuesday night trotting trials in Wagga, Alan Hull went on to become the undisputed voice of racing in the famous New South Wales Riverina region. His is a very good story, and you're about to hear it in his own words. Welcome to the podcast, Alan. Congratulations on a great career well played. John, uh, thank you very much. You've uh, you've done your research well, and uh, most of those things are indeed absolutely true. And yes, uh, I was bitterly disappointed, like yourself, that the swan song didn't uh, end the way it should have. I know your last day at Wet Coffs Harbour was washed out. Yeah. Mine was heated out down at the Albury Trots. It mm. was just too hot to send them around that night. It's not hard to imagine how you were feeling lining up for that last race at Wagga on Australia Day. It's hard to get your head around the fact that this is it. Where did those 40 years go? 
Well, it, it, it was difficult, John, and I, I tried to take the day uh, just as it was, but all my family were there. Um, my wife and my son had come up into the box for the last race, so we didn't let the grandkids up, not knowing uh, just how they would perform. And, of course, uh, as you're well aware, we're, we're, we're calling not only to the local on-course patrons but to our radio and television audience, and uh, I don't think I'm exaggerating saying that uh, that is now worldwide and uh, anywhere in the world can be can be listening in. Is, is that true? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So, that benchmark 58 at Wagga may have been seen in Venezuela. <laughs> exactly. And the interesting part about the race, there were a couple of things. Of course, it was called uh, the Gates Crash back, my, my, my favourite saying that I uh, invented and I don't know where. Uh, and then we had the the horse that was scratched at the barrier just as they were about to go. And the other thing, John, uh, you being a, a, a great race caller, there were two in it uh, with very, very similar colours. Trevor Sutherland's horse, all uh, real key, all gold, black fleur-de-lis, gold cap. Another horse uh, from Gino Del Torrio at Griffith called Dane Slugger, all gold, gold cap, black horseshoes. And, of course, you can't uh, tell much between a horseshoe and a fleur-de-lis at half a mile, but... Uh, again, we look for that something. <laughs> we look for that something a little bit different. And my saving grace, the eye for detail, was that Dane Slugger had yellow blinkers, and indeed, Real Key didn't. And uh, that was the differentiation between uh, Real Key, who, who won the race, and uh, mm. Dane Slugger, who finished in the middle of the pack. And those yellow blinkers were a godsend. They were. They were the saviour. The other thing that was good was that they. Uh, Real Key raced in the first two or three all of the way, uh, and Dane Slugger was back in the pack. And at about the 200, when I was pretty confident, knowing that I'd seen Real Key win two trials fairly impressively, uh, I thought, yes, he's going to get the 1,200 trip. He's a length and a half in front of the 200. I can go for him now and and, and give him a leg up and, and, and say, well done, Trev Sutherland, who, as mm. you say, I've known for a long time. He's our leading trainer. The other pleasing factor was that I actually – on air publicly had tipped the winner. So I, I went out with real key at about nine to two getting the job done. Yeah, perfect. You timed the announcement of your retirement to coincide with Stuart Lamont's retirement as president of the Murrumbidgee Turf Club. You and Stuart have been great friends and it made good sense to go out at the same time. Well, it did to me and there was another reason behind it as well and that all harked back to uh, way back in the early 1980s when Stuart's late father, Colin, uh, the Lamonts, of course, from the very well-known Keringle stud, Colin was the chairman of the Murrumbidgee Turf Club when they put me on and, and gave me the role as course broadcaster to uh, to follow on from the legendary Ted Ryder. When I knew um, all those years later that, that, that Stu was going to, to pull the pin and uh, my family and I had decided that uh, we'd just about uh, had enough, so... Uh, it coincided in beautifully, and I thought, well, look, Lamont was was brave enough to give me a go and to put me on, and with his son bowing out, I wanted Lamont to say uh, goodbye, mm. and uh, it, it worked out beautifully. Cole Lamont put me on, and many, many years later, his son Stuart said goodbye. Jeff Harrison has taken over as president of the Murrumbidgee Turf Club, and we wish him well in his new role. Jeff's a lovely fellow. He's an owner. Um, he's got some horses that uh, are trained by a couple of trainers around the area. He's a local businessman. He's very well known in uh, Wagga Wagga business circles, uh, does a lot of work for charitable organisations. Uh, and Jeff's colours, uh, for those that, uh, that like to look at racing colours, are uh, black with, with red diamonds mm. and uh, a little bit of white there on the sleeve. 
and uh, he's also got another set that he uses with a, a white diamond over green. Um, they haven't been on any champions in the past. Miss Chris was a very good horse that Jeff raced in honour of his wife, Christine, mm. and uh, she's dropped a couple of foals. But look, Jeff Harrison is a man who loves racing, and I'm sure he'll do very, very well at the, at the MPC. Alan, there was another lovely touch to your farewell proceedings. Your son, Quentin, is a very talented and versatile ABC sports commentator based in Brisbane. He's called a wide range of sports with great expertise for many years now, but he had never called a horse race in his life. And to mark your retirement with the blessing of the Murrumbidgee Turf Club and Sky Channel, he actually called a race at Wagga Five days before your last day, did he run he it past? Did he run it past you first? He certainly did, John. Before Christmas, um, when we were, were talking, he said, and uh, we, we knew that the day was coming. Uh, Wagga raced on the Tuesday, and also, as you said, on the Australia Day. And he said before Christmas, Dad, I want you to, uh, I want you to ring Andrew Bensley or whomever is in charge at Sky and ask them if I can call a race. I'm sure if they say I can, the MTC won't mind. Um, I don't want to do it on the last day. That, that's going to have enough emotion involving it. Mm. But I've never called a race. Um, I've worked in the, the sports broadcasting industry for more than 20 years. Mm. Everyone keeps saying to me, oh, do you call races like your old man? The answer is no. He said, I want to change that. Um, I want to call a race for me and for you um, on that second last day. Uh, Andrew Bensley and uh, our, our friends at, at Sky uh, also, uh, Tony Clements in, in Brisbane said, look, that's fine. Um, we're, we're sure he won't let the family down. And indeed, he didn't. Um, did a 2,000-metre <laughs> race. And I don't yeah. know whether you saw it or not, John, but he went for one on the inside, which is a treacherous angle at Wagga, and it got up by half a head. Yeah, Alan, it was a terrific effort. I'm not the only one to commend his achievement on the day because you don't just jump behind a pair of binoculars, switch on a microphone and call a horse race as well as he did on the 21st of January. I thought it was a tremendous effort. Well, he, as I said, he, he wanted to do it. I don't know how many years he'd mulled over asking, um, but he knew the time was, was nigh that I wasn't going to be doing it anymore. And uh, he wanted to do that. I, I'm very proud of the way he called the race. Um, I'm proud that we both stood in those uh, in the broadcast box. And uh, he said, Dad, it was just great to... Uh, to get behind your binoculars and do what you've done for, uh, for nearly 50 years. Mm. Well, you're a man of the land. Your dad, Desmond, and your mum, Maisie, brought you up along with your brother and three sisters on an 1,800-acre property with the romantic name of Silver Springs at Gregadoo, just outside Wagga. And you tell me it was pretty ordinary country back then. Well, look, it was, um, and, and people of our of our ilk, John, and we're talking, um, I lived the first four years of my life in Wagga, and then my dad, who was a returned serviceman, um, was uh, not given, you didn't get given anything, but he earned a, a parcel uh, under the Soldier Settlers uh, Organisation System then, uh, out at Gregadoo, which um, had a public hall uh, and a school where I attended, but our country was very, very rough, uh, lots of rocks, lots of rabbits. And uh, at the age of uh, around uh, four years, we moved to Gregadoo. Uh, we lived in fairly humble surroundings. Um, many people would not know that um, there was such a thing as 32-volt electricity because we didn't have regular 240-volt power. And we had a, a petrol engine 
that that generated power that we fed into a panel of 16 batteries that would last us for three or four days and that ran the the fridge and the and the telly and a few other electrical type bits and pieces but uh, mm. no two volt no 240 volt power at Grigadu. You got your intermediate certificate, as I mentioned, at Wagga High School. You couldn't get out of there fast enough at age 15. Let me pick your two favourite subjects. Other race callers have told me uh, that English and history were their favourites. Well, I did social studies um, when I was at high school and also English. I've always loved the English language um, and uh, I did pretty well at English. I did pretty well at social studies. John, I did reasonably well at all of the subjects, but such was the economic state. We're talking uh, the mid-1960s. Mm. The, the farm couldn't produce uh, enough income for uh, my parents and, and myself and my brothers and whatnot. My brother, who was older than me, had become a, a, a boiler maker. Um, I was given the opportunity to become an apprentice, a machinist at the same business, as you indicated. And so that's... Uh, that's eventually where I went. It was a thing that um, in those days, as you said, you, you left school and, and got a job. Nowhere near the percentage of people went on to university as they, as they do today. Mm. The Wagga Trotting Club ran trials every Tuesday night with no caller. And you approached a man called Max Croker, who was well known in the trotting industry, and you asked him if you could provide a call of those trials. No money, of course, but it was a start. You were an enterprising well, young bloke, weren't you? Well, it, it was a start, and, and Max Croker, as you indicate, uh, he was a great mate of the late Kevin Robinson, had a wonderful horse called Dylan Light. Mm. And uh, one night, in fact, uh, we, we flew to Mildura to see Dylan Light win a heat of the Mildura Pacing Cup. But getting back to Max, because we were people of the land, uh, MC Croker Proprite Limited were grain and produce merchants, mm. lovely word, and uh, we uh, we dealt with them. And I, I sort of knew Max, and uh, I, I'd said to him, "Look, Max, can you can you let me come along and call the trials on a Tuesday night?" I said, "I'll be much better than the bloke you've got." Mm. Of course, they they, they had nobody. <laughs> uh, Max, uh, Max gave me a Guernsey. We got a little portable PA, uh, and I would call the trials to the assembled at twenty or thirty people. Uh, and indeed, it was better than what they'd had previously. Well, then came a meteoric rise in your burgeoning career. A bloke called Jack Adams came along and invited you to be the official commentator for the trots at the Henty Show. And I think this time you did cop a fee. Uh, it was a, a wonderful experience. and I, I still remember the uh, the day we went down, we, because uh, Gail and I had become friends by this stage. And I, I suppose I'm 17. I've got a car at this stage, so I was able to go down. Henting, um, which is about uh, 40 miles south of Wagga on the Olympic Way, called the show trots, of which there were, I think, maybe four or five, got them round successfully, and indeed, uh, something was placed in my palm at the end of the day, <laughs> and I thought, how good is this? <laughs> yeah. How good is this? A small stipend. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, at this time of your life, a man called Ted Ryder, was a giant in the Riverina by stature and by reputation as a journalist and a racing commentator. Give me your recollections of the late Ted Ryder, Alan, the impact he had on you and the role he played on both horse codes in the Riverina. 
Pedrada was uh, a legend and still is a legend. Uh, there's a race run at Wagga for him every year. I, I actually wrote a poem about uh, Ted for uh, for the race book a couple of years ago, and one of the lines that I, I can still recall was, Ted Ryder was big, Ted Ryder was loud, Ted Ryder could not be disguised in a crowd. Uh, that was that was one of my lines about Ted. But he yeah. um, he was he he was he was just huge. He was a big man. He did racing. He did trotting. He was the editor of the Wagga Valley Advertiser, the sporting editor. He did some stuff for ABC Radio with uh, some pre-race information. And uh, he was, uh, uh, look, he and I, our, our friendship certainly developed um, from a point where at the start it was a little chilly. Um, here was this young bloke coming along trying to uh, trying to knock off some of Ted Ryder's meetings, I think would have been the way he looked at it. Mm. But uh, as it turned out, we became very, very good friends. He was a friend of the family. And in those days, John, uh, there were two Gallup meetings every Saturday in the Riverina, uh, one at the major track and one at one of the smaller country areas. And uh, Ted would be at the major tracks. I would be doing the smaller country areas. I would bring completed race books back for him with all of the information because there was no uh, no information like we get these days. And uh, mm. Ted and I became very, very good friends. He was a stipulator for getting it right. Um, you know, one of his things he always said was, get your facts right. And uh, I always... Uh, I always try to carry that with me. Uh, if you've got the facts right, uh, you, you, you're halfway there. Mm. A man called Tex Condren unwittingly furthered your career by retiring from race calling. He'd been number two, hadn't he, to Ted Ryder? Yes, he had. Only in the um, only in the harness racing, Tex didn't do uh, didn't do the the galloping, um, but he certainly did do what uh, the harness racing. And he was starting to train some horses. He had some good harness horses, Brimstone and Mini Wise were two that came to mind. Mm. Um, Tex wanted to do that. I was uh, coming along and I was lucky enough to uh, to jump into Tex's shoes. He would um, do the, the – the circuit was different in those days, John, where the, the day clubs, the smaller clubs without lights, uh, Coolerman, West Wylong, Borellan, Yanko, Adlethan, would race through the winter months and then we'd go to the night season – with clubs such as Wagga, Leeton, Jenny, Tamora. So Tex was doing the afternoon day clubs. He got out of that, and I really got my start doing the afternoon day harness racing before I then uh, graduated into the night trotting and then um, into the galloping. Mm. Well, it was around 1970 when you progressed to the night trots at Wagga, Leeton, Juni, Tamora, and to further your growing reputation, the local station, 2WG, actually put those meetings to air at night, at least through the summer months. They certainly did. Harness racing was so strong that the, the four main clubs then were Wagga, Leeton, Junee and Tamora, and either a Friday or a Saturday night, uh, those meetings would be broadcast through, uh, through Radio 2WG and Wagga Wagga, and uh, Ted was doing them and Tex was doing them, and then obviously as, as Tex Condren uh, moved out of it, I moved in, and uh, I, I started... Uh, with the Wagga Harness Racing Club or the Wagga Show Society in uh, that year, uh, 1970, and also at uh, Leeton, they did a season or two down there, uh, where uh, Alan Wallet, of course, has dominated for so many years. Mm. But I did, uh, I did call a Breeders' Plate down at Leeton uh, way back in. Well, it was 1971 because the Breeders' Plate was on the first day of the new year. Qualifying mm. divisions had been run a Boxing Night and a couple of nights prior to then. So on uh, the 1st of January, 1971. I called uh, Midway Lois winning the Breeders' Plate at Leeton. Mm. 
Alan, we'll elaborate on that very famous series, the MIA Breeders' Plate, after we clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with you in just a moment. The classic sale is now completed with an increase of almost 20% in average and a very healthy clearance rate of 85%. The attention of yearling buyers now focuses on Melbourne for the Inglis Premier Yearling Sale. In total, 784 lots have been catalogued, which will run over a revamped three-day format at the outstanding new Oaklands Junction precinct from March 1st to March 3rd. As part of an extraordinary run of success, which has seen 41 Group 1 winning graduates of Inglis auctions since 2018, the reputation of the Premier sale continues to soar. It has produced 13 individual Group 1 winners since 2018, a tally bettered only by the Easter yearling sale among the major Australian sales. A strong 2020 catalogue contains progeny of 120 sires, including 35 first season sires. There is also a strong international flavour to the catalogue, with a cult by world champion Galileo, the only yearling progeny of this iconic stallion, to be catalogued for public auction in the Southern Hemisphere this year. Champion European stallion Frankel will have three yearlings in the sale. Action starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday, March the 1st. Catalogues are available at inglis.com.au. My guest is Alan Hull, who retired after a 40-year career as a racing commentator as recently as Australia Day. Alan, you mentioned the MIA Breeders' Plate. It was an enormously popular event with trainers who like to get their two-year-olds up and running early in the season. It was run in heats and a final over the Christmas New Year period. You were the caller, as you said, from 1971. How big was the MIA Breeders' Plate? Well, the Breeders' Plate was huge, John. It was, uh, as you said, the race where the trainers got their horses ready. Um, anything up to five, six, seven, eight heats. I think the all-time record was 13, and I certainly didn't call that year. Mm. But uh, there, there were no size stakes races and such as then. This was the opportunity for young horses to, uh, to be brought forward to, uh, to make their mark, and obviously if they were good enough, they would then go on from there. But um, the, the, there was a lot of interest. Uh, trainers came up from Victoria. They came down from uh, the centre of uh, New South Wales. And the, the Leeton Breeders Plate Carnival, um, it was what you did um, after Christmas on Boxing Night. You went to Leeton. Mm-hmm. For many years, the trainer of the winner of the Breeders Plate final got a brand new two-horse float, which was an amazing prize for a trotting trainer back then. I went to Peter Manning's place one day years, oh, probably 15, 16 years ago now, Alan. Uh, he's at Great Western in Victoria, and there were horse floats all over the property. And three had one at the Breeders' Plate. Well, some of them, three or four of them, had been trainers' trophies from Leeton. And Peter came up regularly um, with, with his horses, as you said, from Greater Western, uh, it was a long trip up for them. Uh, some of the trainers, of course, would would uh, pal up with a Leeton trainer and stay the four or five nights over uh, from Boxing Night, obviously, to uh, to New Year's Night if they were successful. Um, others would would go and, and, and come back. Uh, and in those days, uh, the the crowds were, were, were huge as well. 
Um, unfortunately, uh, the breeders' plate was run uh, just a few weeks ago. There were two divisions with six runners in them both, which meant uh, there were only two horses who missed a spot in the final. Um, but, John, uh, as you're well aware, uh, the changing of the breeding industry with the harness racing meant that the horses were, um, were younger as such. Uh, and now, stand me if I'm corrected, but it uh, is illegal, is it not, to run a two-year-old race before the 1st of January? Mm, yep. I, I, trainers are just more conscious now of, of pushing these young horses too early. There's so much for them as late two-year-olds and three-year-olds now, Alan. Huge prize money. Mm. The other thing, of course, is that um, with so many other opportunities, all of the breeders' series these days are... Uh, the, the 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 challenge series and the, and the breeders series and the incentive schemes that hmm. there's no real urgency for for the trainers to bustle the young horses. Yeah, that's the point. You've got one very vivid memory of a promotion launched by the Wagga Trotting Club in the early 1970s. They got a huge crowd to the track one night to watch a clash between two of Australia's iconic harness horses, Hondo Grattan and pale-face Adios, and I think little Hondo beat his old foe that night, didn't he? You were there. Well, I did think that originally, John, but uh, since we last spoke, I have done some research, and in mm. fact, pale-face Adios won the race. I was looking at a report in the press. Hondo Grattan got a check uh, with about a 1,000 metres to go, mm. and pale-face actually got away. He, he went around and was driven by Keith Pike. Now, normally he was driven by Colin, but uh, Keith, the big brother, did the driving this night, and, and Paleface Adios actually got the job done that night. Uh, Honda Gretton finished um, uh, astern of him. Mm. But the other big factor that night was that the legendary Ray Conroy, a man whom any of us in the industry knew and respected, Ray came down, called the race, and actually put his head on a pillow in my bed that night in Keringle. So uh, nice. to have Ray Conroy at my place was tremendous. Yeah, great broadcaster and one of the the gentleman of the broadcasting profession and long gone now, sadly. He, he, was, he, he was a wonderful man, John, uh, and as you say, I don't think anybody would have a bad word to say about the late Ray Conroy. I heard somebody say once that the worst thing Ray ever did in his life was let a bucket of water run over once. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm also going to just uh, momentarily... Uh, get on another harness racing event that, that will interest you greatly. I was looking through one of my, my books the other day and I've come up with uh, uh, the meeting at Wagga Wagga on the 19th of January 1980. There is an invitation driver's race. No prize money, no betting. Uh, owners will uh, receive free services to the following stallions. Welcome advice, Dylan Light, Johnny Joe, Wild Rover, Noah LaBelle and Blue Venture. But the driver's, John, uh, Brave Melody, Darren Binskin, Joanna Louise, Clary Sweeney, Bridie Mist, Miss Kim Moore, Neverly Gay, John Bainan, Jason Rowan will be driven by Stephen Shin, the Victorian, Falcon Camp by Mrs. Sue Ottman, a lady whom I don't know, and the winner was a horse called Bay C, driven by Miss Deborah Wicks. Some of those names would surely be familiar to you. Well, all of them, uh, Alan, I've got to say, all of them. Debbie, uh, Deborah Wicks Moss, as she's known today, has been in Victoria for quite a long time now, and trotters are her speciality, the square gators. Right. And now, uh, it, it was interesting that, that Kim Moore, of course, who's now Kim War, uh, who was a very, very good harness racing driver, 
um, she had a drive in the event as well. Kim drove a total of 80 winners in a rather short career and 20 of them were at Harold Park Paceway, particularly um, that little mare, Ranji Bill, was her all-time favourite. I think she won seven or eight races on Ranji Bill at Harold Park. I talk to Kim about Ranji Bill whenever I run into her at the races these days. Now, Al mm. Reichman was another big name to appear at Wagga in the 1970s. Was a huge uh, was a huge uh, draw card, uh, the Victorian Reichman, and he actually came up, John, uh, to, to June in a race that was organised by uh, Arthur Stanley, who was an entrepreneurial Scottishman who came to the township of June and managed the local mill there. Uh, and the thing about Reichman that I'll always remember is that wherever Reichman went, uh, along with this little Shetland pony, which was his uh, his long time travelling companion. And apparently if the little pony didn't go, well, well Reichman just didn't perform. Yeah. And he went and ran in a free-for-all at, at June E. I saw a photo just recently of that little pony you're talking about and I jotted his name down. <laughs> the pony's name was Barney Boogles. <laughs> Barney? <laughs> Boogles. Barney Boogles. Barney well, Boogles there was you the, go. the name of the little Shetland that went everywhere with the great horse Reichman. Mm. Now... Ted Ryder's health failed in the late 1970s and inevitably you took over as chief gallops caller in the Riverina. You've got some great memories of the early Wagga Cup broadcast. What was your well, first I, Wagga Cup, do you recall? I certainly do. I can remember the day like it was yesterday. Uh, it was in 1979, first Friday of May, of course, and a horse called Big Bickies. He'd been floated down by Paul Sutherland. Mm. Mark Dumontford rode him. And uh, Big Bickies uh, still sees colours now, orange, yellow, and uh, orange, red, and black. And he won, and he won very, very easily. And the following year, they brought him back again, and he went again in 1980. And I think on the second occasion, he was ridden by, uh, by Kevin Langby. Goodness me. And L.A. Bijou was another one you talk very fondly of. Very, very good horse, uh, trained by Chris Honeychurch, uh, Unfortunately, Chris uh, met his demise in a car accident um, many years ago, but uh, he trained L.A. Bijou, and Chris, of course, was the son of the legendary Bert Honeychurch from Berrigan. Uh, L.A. Bijou won two Wagga Gold Cups. I think Neil Campton rode him the first time, and the second time, uh, Gary Willett rode him, and he won by further. He was a very, very good horse, L.A. Bijou, and uh, he certainly, um, had he been racing today, would have amassed prize money in the millions. Sixth mm. of May two thousand and four may not ring a bell with you straight off the top of your head, but that was the day Takeover Target turned up at Wagga for a Class One. He'd won a maiden at Queen Beanne by a big margin, almost eight lengths in fact. Then he went to Wagga for his second start in a race. Do you remember him? I remember the horse coming. I remember doing the form. And I remember not showing a lot of respect for a maiden at Queenbian to come into a class one at Wagga. The other, the other determining factor was that he'd drawn uh, maybe 12 or 14 at the 1260. And you just don't win from out there without a lot of luck or indeed a lot of ability. He had the latter. And I can still say it now. I think he won by seven lengths that day. And suddenly, TAB, uh, sorry, the, uh, the taxi driver from Queenbian, Joe Janiak, was, uh, was on the way to start him. Mm. 
Alan, you're quite right. It was the Wagga race that he won by seven and a half lengths, not the Queen Beanne one. Mm. Who would have dreamed he was going to go on to win eight Group 1s in four countries and $6 million in prize money? And I think that day, John, was also the last time that we ran the Cup over the old famous Wagga Hill because the track was regenerated, refigured, mm. and we didn't race for, for 12 months. And I stand corrected, but I think... The last winner I called over that famous Wagga Hill winning the cup was Antwerp, mm. who was trained by uh, Jack and Bobbingham, mm. uh, the old Cerise, and I think Kay Langby might have been on board that day as well. Mm. You called a race at Gundagai in the early 1980s, won by a horse who was later to carve himself a piece of racing history as the horse who posed as fine cotton in that infamous Eagle Farm ring-in. The horse was trained for a short time in Cootamundra and that's how he got to race in Gundagai. And the horse's name was Bold Personality um, and I think, uh, as you say, he was in in Cootamundra. I might have called him two or three times around in the Southern District. I think he was here for uh, certainly a period of time and and who was to know that uh, he would uh, be involved in, as you say, one of the greatest, uh, is scams the right word? One of the greatest yeah. scams in Australian racing history. The marvellous campaign king won three early races at Berrigan on his way to 23 wins and about $1.8 million. Did you call him in those Berrigan races? Certainly did. Call campaign king at Berrigan. He was trained by Les Theodore. Les Theodore was a son-in-law of, of Bert Honeychurch and he was a magnificent animal, as I remember him, a big chestnut. I think he had a blaze as well. And he could jump and he could run. And, of course, Berrigan, John, one of the few tracks in New South Wales that uh, that go the other way, or the Victorian way, if you want to term it that way. So uh, down at Berrigan, they used to run these 950-metre maidens, and they were on a dog leg. They started 900 metres away, they thundered down to the corner, and then they ran straight at you. And uh, I called it Berrigan for many, many years. Uh, they ran predominantly in the winter time, and they would appear out of the fog at about the 600 metres as they were straightening up and you tried to sort them out in the run of the line. You saw a lot of old Green Ridge uh, back in those early days. He seemed to race forever. He had 201 race starts. Listen to his figures, Alan. Green Ridge, he won 43 of them and he ran 79 placings. Questions are, how did he stay sound? How did he retain his zest for racing? He was a freak. And it's interesting that you should bring him up because he won his first race, and without a word of a lie, on the day that I started at Wagga, on the 1st August of 1982, Green Ridge won his maiden. Now, I may be wrong here. I think Graham Power rode him. On that day, during his career, Graham rode him a number of times. Uh, our great little mate, uh, Don the Duck Terry, was also one of Green Ridge's regular riders, and so too was Grant McCarthy. Um, Davy Haywood trained him for much of his career. He was a wonderful old horse, and you always knew that he'd, he'd put in, and those, uh, those statistics that you've indicated uh, show that he was pretty durable. Berrigan was home base to Bert Honey Church, as you mentioned earlier. Bert died only a few years ago, and he was a true legend of his era, he would have made his presence felt, Alan, had he moved to Randwick or Flemington, but he never wanted to leave the bush. 
He was a wonderful guy, Bert Honey Church, and I had the privilege of calling there for many, many years. Uh, for many of those years, his stable foreman was a real character. He was a former Collingwood ruckman called Brian Dorman, big, strong man. Uh, and Brian Dorman was uh, was part of that Bert Honey Church uh, era. The other thing that people don't realise with Bert is he was such a great mentor of jockeys. Davy Hayward, uh, Jeff Duray, who's got that very, very good Philly news girl going well at the moment. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, we lost one of his boys uh, just a couple of days ago. Neil Shelton uh, has passed away. Bobby Beasley. Uh, they were all apprentices of the great uh, Bert Honey Church. And I can remember Bert winning the Wagga Cup and the Town Plate on successive days. He won the Town Plate with a mare called Honoured, and he won the, the, the Cup with Double Cop. And Double Cop won the Cup twice, and uh, certainly Ray Selkrig uh, rode him in either both mm. or one of those wins. Other jockeys uh, from those early race-calling days in the Riverina were Steve Sharman, Don Terry, Norm Dickens, Nick Souquet, Peter Robel uh, started to gather momentum in the Riverina, didn't he, before coming to Sydney? He certainly did. And, and look, Pete was just a battling bush rider, but he worked at it and he worked at it and he got to the top of the tree here and then he looked to try and climb a higher one in the city and was successful in doing that as well. Um, of those names you've just mentioned, uh, Nick Souquet is still riding, but there were some wonderful riders. And uh, people often ask me, and I still go back to Stephen Sharman. Uh, Steve Sharman rode for the Coxes. Uh, unfortunately, both uh, Ollie and uh, Brian have both since passed away, but they were almost unbeatable. Uh, Ollie Cox as Sharman. He, he moved in, in motion with the horse. He was not a tall man. He sat low over the horse's neck. And uh, they were just in perfect unison and harmony. And, and uh, S. Sharman uh, and O. Cox, uh, unbeatable. Mm. Apart from Bert Honeychurch, there were several other trainers down that way who left an indelible impression with you. Well, there were some big trainers uh, in Richard Freer, who was a big man, but uh, also in his youth, and I didn't know at that stage, uh, Richard, but he actually won a race in Sydney, either at Rose Hill or at Renwick, as an amateur rider. When you'll remember, John, they used to run the Corinthian, the first mm. race on the bank holiday Monday. Yeah, for where years. all the amateur riders would come. Richard won one of those. Mm, I didn't know that. Now, if you looked at him in later years, he was a man of 16 or 17 stone, and you could <laughs> win bets by saying, see that fellow in the crowd over there? He <laughs> rode a winner at Randwick. Yeah. You get your money every time. The other, the other leading light was uh, a guy called Ken Sweeney, uh, who, from Gerildery, had a big team, won lots of races, and Ken's still training a team in, uh, in Morfordville in South Australia. So they were the big three through my early era, uh, Honeychurch, uh, the Freers, and, of course, uh, Ken Sweeney. In recent times, uh, Brett Kavanagh, who's now up in the Scone area, he has uh, about 10, I think, SDRA premierships when he started up after coming down from Queensland. And in more recent years, of course, uh, the man who run, won the last race at Wagga the other day, Krebs Sutherland, uh, they've certainly been the more dominant trainers over the journey. We've mentioned your son, Quentin, whose career is humming along beautifully in Brisbane, but we haven't acknowledged your only daughter, Stephanie, who is a school teacher. She's in Brisbane too. Yes, she is. Uh, she has uh, taught in both uh, Australia and also overseas. They had a stint there as well. Uh, she has uh, taught in Brisbane, uh, currently working in the education department. So uh, very proud of what uh, both of the youngsters have, uh, have done with their lives. And finally, last but certainly not least, is your darling wife, Gail, of how many years? 
what year are we in now, John? I still remember my wedding day, and I jokingly say I was married in 1974 yeah. uh, on a pretty cold August day, and, and I jokingly say to people, look, I had no races on that day, uh, so we decided to get married. But look, uh, 1974 does seem a long, long time ago, yeah. but uh, we all know that no one gets where they are without the the support crew and the, and the, and the backstops, and the Gail's been a wonderful backstop if it wasn't for her in those early days when I was off at the races of the trots and she was there taking the kids to uh, the sporting and and cultural activities. Um, we wouldn't be who we are today. So uh, she takes a, a fair slice of the credit. 46 but, years uh, you've been none. married, to answer the question. 46 exactly. years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, Gail hasn't been a regular race goer for reasons you've just explained, but she does love a day at the races. And you tell me she's got a very good eye for a horse. She does. Her uh, her grandfather, the late Bob Willison, was a very, very good man. He was uh, strongly associated with the Robbie Jack stable. He had uh, horses himself. He raced horses. And as a young girl, Gail would help uh, grandfather Bob um, with the starting of them down the back lane behind their place, holding the elastic ribbons, as we used to start them with at the trots. So she'd be there to, to hold it up and to let it go and to do it again. And uh, she does... Uh, he does know horses quite well, although he's not uh, as such a punter. Yep. Alan, with your departure, New South Wales Racing loses a caller who had great passion and a sense of theatre. And that well-known expression you mentioned earlier, the gates crash back, immediately identified a race somewhere in the great Riverina district of New South Wales. Congratulations on a big job well done. And to you and Gail, a happy and healthy retirement. John, thank you very much. Uh, in, a, in a recent uh, press interview, I was asked uh, what were the three most important things to me. Uh, the first important thing was to be accurate. If you're not accurate, forget it. The second was to be articulate. I'm a little disappointed at some of the language which uh, is used these days. Not that the language is bad. I don't believe it to be correct. So I always wanted to be articulate. And I wanted to be entertaining. It is an entertaining industry. Someone has backed the six to four favourite. Someone is on the 100 to one outsider. And I believe they both deserve a fair go. Alan, horse racing is the greatest show on earth. And the main players are those magnificent thoroughbreds. Indeed they are. And, uh, well, I can recall two that uh, will be be remembered forever. They've got statues in their hometowns, and of course, I'm referring to Gunsin, Gundawindi Gray, and the mighty Tamora Tornado, Pale Face Adios, who will both um, be in their, uh, as I said, hometowns for all time. Alan, thanks for your time. Lovely to chat on the podcast, and the podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing, and Inglis.